I think moving forward, you won't be able to do average. I think you need an exceptional experience. Otherwise, people will visit another venue. And I think perhaps some countries have been slow to sort of adopt and they've had that old style massive box with just with seats in it, a generic experience and no service and no food and mm. no whatever else. I think we all now have really high expectations in regards to anything that we do. This is the Box Office Podcast. I'm Daniel Aria, the Editorial Director of Box Office Pro, the pulse of theatrical exhibitions since 1920. Joined today by our co-host, Russ Fisher, Editorial Director of the Box Office Studios, which provides editorial content services for movie theaters. In this week's episode, we are going over the latest headlines, including Netflix reaching a deal with major exhibitors around the Knives Out sequel. We've also got John Fithian, the President and CEO of the National Association of theater owners announcing his retirement while we also go over the box office preview with this weekend's release of Halloween Ends. And in our feature segment, Rebecca Polly interviews Cameron Mitchell, a longtime executive in the industry, now heading up a trade association for Australian cinemas. But let's get things going here. Russ, welcome once again to the podcast. I know we've both been traveling recently. Have you been able to catch any movies in the interim? Sadly, no, I haven't. You know, I'm desperately looking forward to watching Hellraiser, which is unfortunately not a theatrical release, but I love those movies. This one was made by a friend of mine, and uh, I'm excited to, to see what he's done with it. I've been hearing great things about that uh, reimagining of the Hellraiser franchise. Correct me if I'm wrong, that's exclusive to Hulu, unfortunately. That's not hitting theaters. Yeah, it's, uh, you know, it, it's kind of in the same vein as uh, Prey, the, the movie that uh, the Predator prequel sequel thing which did very well for Hulu as I understand and seemed to generate a big audience uh, and that might be precisely why they ended up going Hulu only for Hellraiser. I think Prey would have been uh, a moderate uh, success when we talk about those results in context theatrically. I really like that movie. Hellraiser is the type of movie that as you mentioned, can work on a big screen and the horror genre, Russ, at the box office right now, overperforming every other wide release. We saw a movie like Bros really struggled to take off last weekend. This weekend, 20th Century Studios Amsterdam failed to launch. Same thing with Lyle Isle Crocodile from Sony. Horror movies, we saw Smile, an 18% drop in its sophomore frame topping the box office once again with $18 million. These horror movies just keep on performing. This is the thing that horror has done consistently for decades, uh, which is gonna drive uh, a lot of our conversation later in this episode, but it's just like, we saw this with Barbarian, which kind of came out of nowhere. There have been reports about how no studio in Hollywood wanted to make Barbarian, and then they, they got it done. It was even marketed kind of strangely, you know, not a great cinema score, which indicates that the marketing doesn't necessarily line up with the movie or with expectations. You know, that movie performed well. I, it overperformed, and Smile is overperforming as well. And it's it's nice to see. You know, it's good to see that horror, uh, especially when released at this time of the year, is is going to do the thing that, that we all consistently say it is possible to do. And original horror as well. We saw the success of Ty West's X earlier this year. He followed up with a surprise prequel, Pearl. I don't know if you saw Martin Scorsese's glowing review 
of the movie. I absolutely love to see when established filmmakers can look at a colleague and say, this movie matters. Go see it at the movies. A friend of the podcast, Sean Baker, he recently saw Triangle of Sadness in L.A., actually bought 200 tickets uh, oh, I think wow, it was yeah, yeah, 200 tickets. I've, I think it was in the LA area that you could go to specific locations and just say, Sean sent me and get a free ticket uh, to go see Triangle of Sadness. That's how much he loved this Ruben Östlund film that won the, the Palme d'Or earlier this year. And folks that followed him on social media, saw that post, went out, went to their local multiplex and gave this movie a shot. Those are the initiatives I think we really love to see uh, as people working in this industry. When directors can say, hey, this is a theatrical experience. I'm going to promote not only my own titles, but also those of my colleagues. And as we mentioned last weekend's box office, uh, we talked about how Smile really overperformed as a horror title. The new openers really didn't uh, get going, but on the specialty market for us, uh, it wasn't only the free tickets that uh, that Sean Baker bought for Triangle of Sadness. Uh, that film opened to a fantastic 21,000 per screen average from 10 locations in New York and L.A. Tar from Focus Features. Wow. $40,000 per screen average from four locations in New York and L.A. Number one in three of its four theaters, including Lincoln Square, The Angelica, and The Grove. Uh, a fantastic movie. I, I saw both these movies, actually, at the New York Film Festival. Both Triangle of Sadness and Tar, I have to tell you, are among my favorite movies of the year. It's fun to see people excited about a movie that is like, you know, kind of a heady art house drama. It, it feels like a callback to an era that a lot of people would say w was done. On the Tar side, I can tell you that script is watertight. It's one of the best screenplays I've seen on the screen. Every line of dialogue opens a new layer of mystery, something you want to discover more from the character. Nothing is up front. It makes the viewer work just the right amount. Uh, fantastic, fantastic uh, theatrical experience. I can't see that movie working at all at home. I can tell you that right now. This is something you're going to have to go to the theaters and give your undivided attention to. It's a slow burn. For Triangle of Sadness, it's uh, Ruben Ostlund via Luis Buñuel. I mean, there's a lot of uh, Buñuel's um, exterminating angel in there. Uh, there's a lot of Weekend from Jean-Luc Godard. Uh, I think that came, what, 1967, 1968? I would probably say that's the closest comparison uh, to this title, but a, a great, great, exciting uh, trip to the movies when you go see either of these titles. I love it. Uh, I mean, Exterminating Angel, I've talked about it before. It's one of my favorite movies, period. That's It's magnificent stuff. And what you just said about the tar script, I'm going to keep pronouncing it slightly different every time I mention that movie. But what you just said about that script is really, it makes me wish even more that we could see Field's long-abandoned adaptation of Blood Meridian uh, the novel by Cormac McCarthy, which he worked on for a long time, because what you're describing is exactly what you would hope to see from an, an adaptation of that novel. Yeah, a famous unfilmable novel, uh, as we've talked about in the past. Talking about unfilmable novels, I saw uh, White Noise uh, from Noah Baumbach uh, at the New York Film Festival. It's still unfilmable. It didn't work for me. Yeah, it didn't. Uh, it didn't get it right, uh, in my opinion. I'll be curious to see how that plays out. That title's getting uh, another long theatrical exclusivity period from Netflix. His prior film, Russ, you might remember, Marriage Story, 
also got, I think it was 30 days, maybe a little more, from Netflix when it came out in 2019. Uh, and we've got a big piece of news here as we talk about Netflix and theatrical exclusivity because Glass Onion, a Knives Out sequel, is going to major circuits. Yeah, it is. And, you know, I think we need to... to talk about this in context of Noah Baumbach's deal, as you as you set up so nicely. You know, Baumbach has a longer relationship with Netflix, and I wonder about the degree to which that helped broker a long exclusivity window uh, for white noise. Uh, you have to expect that Baumbach went into it saying like, hey, I want to do this, but I want it to play in theaters for a certain degree of time. That said, Ryan Johnson, the filmmaker behind Knives Out and Glass Onion, you know, is is not an unknown quantity. And you would think that this would be the sort of thing that Netflix would also push for a longer window. Uh, we just had the announcement of uh, a 600 theater booking in the U.S. and Canada, plus overseas markets, UK, Ireland, Germany, Italy, Spain, that are going to get Glass Onion for one week, November 23rd to 29th, uh, which is nice. You know, it's the Thanksgiving week. It's great. But then it's going to go out of theaters. There's basically going to be a blackout period until the movie opens on Netflix on December 23rd. You know, it's kind of it's kind of weird. Like, I think you noted that it's basically a 30-day window, but it's not actually 30 play dates, you know, which is... I don't think counts. Yeah, it's a very different way of looking at theatrical exclusivity, this blackout period. Um, yeah, I mean, listen, this is new. Uh, I don't see this as the solution to what Netflix and theatrical were negotiating. I think it's a middle ground. So I think that's better than nothing. But yeah, I mean, if you look at what a circuit like Cinemark has been doing for over a year now, playing Netflix titles with a week of exclusivity and then still playing them once they hit the service. I don't know about you, man. I think that looks a lot better than what we're seeing here. If I look at the Irishman release for the theaters that played it, if we look at Marriage Story, those releases seemed like a lot better deals than this uh, middle ground compromise for the Knives Out sequel. And it's difficult when you're talking about Netflix, a company which is – as not transparent <laughs> as you can get. It's difficult to say with any certainty what's going on there. But what I would kind of guess is that this connects back to what we were talking about with respect to Hellraiser and Prey at the opening of the episode, which is I would go into this, into this thinking that Netflix sees Glass Onion as a subscription driver in a way that it does not for a movie like White Noise. And so my take on this is basically that there's more value to Netflix in shorter theatrical exclusivity, maybe really using the theatrical exclusivity as a way to get people to know that the movie exists, to know that people like the movie. It's, you know, it's critical takes on it so far are overwhelmingly positive. And so that's a win for Netflix's subscription department, which, let's be honest, has struggled over the past year. This has not been a good year for Netflix in terms of subscriber numbers. It's been the worst year the service has ever had. And so having a nice little end-of-year bump, if that can be tracked to Glass Onion, is a pretty nice thing for Netflix and ultimately hopefully a pretty nice thing for, for Ryan Johnson as well, who, uh, you know, has said that 
he'd be willing to keep doing Knives Out movies with Daniel Craig kind of as long as they have ideas and Craig wants to do them. It's not a theatrical release as much as it's filling in a holiday weekend. You're getting an extra weekend on a title that you wouldn't have if you're an exhibitor. You're not really getting the, let's say, $200 million theatrical rollout that you would expect had this hit over 3,000 locations that the original hit. I think the original made around $165 million playing at around 3,400 locations for an entire 90-day exclusivity window. You got six days here. That's what you got, and you got it in 600 locations. We, When we talk about this movie, we're not going to get box office data from Netflix. We're not so naive to think that would ever happen, but the numbers are going to equal out what would be an important opening weekend. It's good for business at Thanksgiving. I'm not sure it's that silver bullet we've all been waiting for, but hey, progress is progress. AMC, Regal, they're part of this. They weren't part of this before. And at this point, if we as we track the available showtimes through the box office company's showtimes dashboard, we've got AMC, Regal, Cinemark, Alamo Drafthouse, uh, Showcase in the US, Marcus Theaters, Cinepolis USA, Megaplex in Utah, Imagine Entertainment in the Midwest. There are people playing it. There are more circuits that I'm seeing for this title playing a Netflix film than we've seen in the past. And the other thing you got to ask here is what the ability and willingness of exhibitors to give screens over to a title like this for one week, basically, on a huge, what is traditionally a can be a very big weekend. What that says about the rest of the Thanksgiving and the November lineup, you know, does this indicate that they're not super hopeful for Disney's animated movie Strange World? And you mentioned that release of Disney Strange World uh, hitting theaters around the Thanksgiving holiday. A big question mark when we talk about the influence of streaming and theatrical on what's going to be happening in France. We know Strange World is not going to be hitting French cinemas as Disney is still battling uh, the new theatrical window structure, uh, really media structure in France. And now another twist here. We don't know if Black Panther Wakanda Forever is going to hit cinemas in France. A huge question mark as Disney continues to battle the new legal structure around Windows. Uh, we've said it before, Russ. Yes, it'd be great to have Netflix movies uh, playing in every movie theater around the world. At the end of the day, you know, no one's going to turn out for Roma in a way that's going to make 800 million worldwide. It's not that type of movie. That's fine. That's okay. But Disney, that's a whole other situation. That's a situation where you really have to make sure they're aligned with theatrical. And uh, I guess on the other side of the coin here, Russ, I'm here in Mexico uh, visiting my family. I went to the movies yesterday to check out uh, Amsterdam with my parents at the uh, Cinepolis uh, VIP Esfera here in uh, in Querétaro. Uh, We had a great time. Lo and behold, at a Cinepolis location, a trailer promoting the theatrical release of Bardo directed by Alejandro González Iñárritu, distributed by Netflix, uh, shown in in the trailer as coming out to cinemas in October here in Mexico. Another sign of progress. Great to see that the major streamer is working with the country's high-profile filmmakers to put these movies out in theaters. If it's working for AMC with Glass Onion, it's working with Mexican filmmakers uh, here between Netflix and Cinepolis in Mexico. We do have to talk about this as we approach this weekend's sole new wide release, Halloween Ends from Universal. 
This is the Bloomhouse reimagining of the Halloween franchise, starring the original star, Jamie Lee Curtis, directed by David Gordon Green. Russ, we've been talking about this title for a while, but let me remind you of something that I typed in our group chat uh, that we have here for the podcast back on July 28th. I mentioned that there was a $2.5 billion annual loss for Peacock, universal streaming service. And I said that there was no subscriber growth in the last quarter, as of late July 2022. And then I mentioned... What's the likelihood of Halloween ends getting dumped day and date on Peacock so half a dozen people can watch it and basically tick up those subscriber numbers? Guess what happened months later? We've got another day and date release of this horror title. You know, uh, I have to admit, I I am among the people who subscribed to Peacock to watch Halloween Kills. I ended up keeping the subscription because as one does with subscriptions, often I I just kind of stopped thinking about it. And now I'm like, okay, I will keep it through October 14th or 15th when I watch Halloween Ends, and then I'll probably cut that because clearly I'm not watching it. And that's the big challenge here, right? Avoiding churn. Sure, if you put a great high-profile title on streaming, you might get that tick up of subscribers for a month or two. But like you, why would I keep on spending 7 to 10 bucks a month using something that I click on twice a month? Uh, it's unlikely. But hey, they're keeping you with Halloween ends. Uh, obviously, they were looking at the data from Halloween Kills from last year, which did go day and date. Uh, and they were looking at the forecasting for this final uh, title going exclusive theatrical. They made a decision that works for Universal. It's not clear if it's going to work for theaters. Right now, in our forecasting, we're expecting a 37 to $47 million opening weekend in that, uh, you know, low 40s, high 30s uh, range, a potential theatrical gross total of about 70 to 88 million uh, here domestic under $100 million, which we have to say is a disappointment. The original David Gordon Halloween reboot uh, back in, I think it was 2018, that ended up making around 160 million theatrical, open to around $75 million just that opening weekend. Well, As we close out the franchise, the opening weekend of 2018's Halloween might end up being a realistic theatrical run for Halloween ends. Yeah, you know, it's it has to be noted that when David Gordon Green's 2018 movie opened, it had been almost 10 years since a Halloween movie was in theaters. Uh, And throughout that decade, there were a lot of false starts and a lot of Uh, you know, questions about whether or not the series would ever continue. Uh, You get Jamie Lee Curtis coming back to the series, which throughout the history of Halloween has always been kind of a big deal. Uh, You know, that's that's sort of a, you know, there's always a bump when Jamie Lee returns. And so she came back for the 2018. That really helped, I think, push it up to and over the $100 million mark. Uh, but there's already, just two movies later, I think a little bit of franchise fatigue setting in, which, it must be said, is also a thing that consistently happens with franchises like this, and especially with Halloween. I think Halloween has been more subject to uh, midstream franchise fatigue than most iconic horror series. Halloween Kills was divisive. Uh, it, I don't think it was what fans expected or wanted, and I don't think it performed, even taking into account the, the difficulty and weirdness of 
a 2021 opening day and date on streaming. You know, I don't think it was the it was the movie that anybody was kind of hoping for. So now the question is, does Halloween Ends stand as something that's a little closer to the 2018 or is it, uh, you know, further along the line of what was set out with Halloween Kills? And I don't know. But there, I think the fact that that question is even there is is probably a lot of what's driving uh, Universal's decision. Uh, but it's interesting to see this decision in light of what we talked about just a few minutes ago with movies like Barbarian and, and particularly Smile overperforming. You've got a point where horror is doing really well at the box office. So you would think if you you know that there's some version of a universe in which uh, Universal could turn Halloween ends into another overperformer, but uh, for whatever reason they're they're hedging their bets. And closing up the news segment on this week's edition of the Box Office Podcast, an announcement from the National Association of Theater Owners with the retirement of John Fithian the president and CEO of NATO. He's going to be retiring on May 1st of 2023. That's after next year's edition of CinemaCon. John Fithian has been an extremely influential figure in this industry, leading the trade group for movie theaters since 2000. He's been associated with NATO since 1992. So it's been a 30-year tenure for Fithian at the National Association of Theater Owners. That's going to be coming to an end next May. The executive board of the National Association of Theater Owners currently looking at uh, options for the next person to uh, take the reins over at NATO. And we'll be tracking all of those updates on our website, boxofficepro.com, where you can check up the latest news and announcements happening in the world of theatrical exhibition. Well, Russ, thanks again for joining us this week. And now let's go over to Rebecca Polly's feature interview with Cameron Mitchell, heading over the trade group of cinema owners in Australia in a wide-ranging interview looking at the latest updates from the Australian cinema market. I'm joined today by Cameron Mitchell, the executive director of NACO, which represents the interests of cinema operators in Australia and New Zealand. Now, uh, Cameron, flashback to 2020. And uh, the Australian market was really quite proactive when it came to dealing with the pandemic. There were a lot of restrictions. And then, of course, as we know, once those restrictions get lifted, there really aren't a lot of movies for people to go see. Um, I, I don't want to focus too much on the past here. I, I don't really think anyone does. So let me just ask you, in terms of this year, uh, what's the recovery on the Australian and the New Zealand market been like? Fortunately, this year, like many countries, we've seen this sort of massive spike and this massive sort of return to cinemas. If you look at the comparative period in 2021, we're roughly in Australia about 80% ahead of 2021 as of, you know, end of July. Mm -hmm. New Zealand's about, I think, 50% up on on the same period. I think both countries already, as of end of July, are ahead of the full year 2021 numbers, which is obviously really encouraging. You know, Maverick in Australia has done, I think, almost $90 million dollars. You know, Minions, Thor, Batman, Doctor Strange. Like we've had all these films that are in now the top 50 films of all time. You know, I think the Batman as well. Elvis, you know, has grossed in local currency in Australia $32 million, which makes it the fourth highest grossing Australian film of all time because it was Elvis was made partially in Australia and funded by, you know, many Australian government organisations as well. So we're really happy that, you know, um, cinemas are back, content's back, and we're showing now that, 
with the right content, um, people are you know racing back to the cinemas. So it's really some really positive signs. So I mean, 2020 people were understandably kind of reticent to go back. Did the local content pick up across 2021? If you go back to say 2015, we had a, a great year for Australian box office, which was about 80 million dollars. You know, 2021 was 71 million dollars. So. It was almost at that peak level. So as a comparison, in 2019, Australian box office was just under 23 million. And in 2021, we were 71 and a half, three and a half times the 2020 result and one and a half times or more than one and a half times the 2019 result. So there was, there was definitely a spike um, and we were so happy to see that Australian content on screen. And it's something that, you know, I've, I've previously been based in the Middle East for the last 15 years working in exhibition and distribution over there. And I've come back and joined, you know, NACO as executive director. And, and one of my early focuses is to sort of work with all the different creatives in Australia. And we've got you know, an amazing organisation, Screen Australia, which is funded by the, the federal government. You know, there's Screen Queensland, there's Screen Producers Association. There's all these different organisations that are um, full of amazing sort of Australian talent that are really focused on local production. You know, box office, again, 2019 was about $20 million up to about 80 in 2015, 72 million last year. Um, there's a massive opportunity, I feel, for, for Australian productions because if you look at, there's huge incentives for um, creatives to film content in, a, in a Australia. The tax rebates are amazing. If you look at the talent that's come out of Australia from a, you know, actors, actresses have perspective. We've got amazing talent. So I think we've really got um, all the right ingredients for Australian box office to continue to boom. And I, I see it hitting that $100 million mark quickly um, mm -hmm. because everyone's really focused on that healthy local um, Australian market, not because of COVID, just because we have a lot of talent and people love local stories. Okay. What's, the, what's the scene like in Australia in terms of chains versus independence? And I mean, here in the United States, it was different sizes of chains would have different government programs that might support them. The market is very collaborative. So there's roughly 2,800 screens between Australia and New Zealand, 2,300 in Australia, about 500 in New Zealand. A good mix of large chains, independent chains. You know, there's, you know, from a from a box office perspective, it, it does vary in regards to market share depending on the film and types. We have a lot of um, regional cities in Australia, obviously, and towns we call them. There's a lot of local sort of, you know, the local cinema where we always used to joke that the cinema manager was more popular than the mayor in each town because he he or she was sort of bringing happiness and and whatever else to the town. During COVID, you know, the government was supportive in a few different ways. There was a JobKeeper program where they gave basically subsidies based on, you know, wages paid by, by each company, which was, you know, which was supportive. Um, the government went further than that and gave a contribution to independent cinemas only um, to support them during those sort of challenging times. That contribution didn't extend to the major chains, unfortunately. Um, but the government w was supportive and we now have a new arts minister who, seems to be very focused, you know, from the recent election a few months ago, very focused on the art scene and, and how we can sort of support local content and, and the arts industry. So um, from that perspective, I think the ecosystem is very healthy. The story that, that we tell a lot, I guess, about the North American market is everybody's kind of scrambling to 
what can we do with this movie theater that's not show movies? You know, you have the entertainment yeah, center, yeah. you have Fort Spain, you have it expanded, F&B. Is that the thing in, in Australia and New Zealand? Because I know in the Middle East, like, they're all in for any kind of premium concept. So I think Australia, as I said earlier, has always, you know, like Gold Class, the premium VIP experience that now exists globally, was invented by Australian cinema chains back in the... Um, I think late 80s, early 90s. So we've always been very focused on the experience of going to cinemas and the standard of cinemas in Australia is, is exceptional. And there's always been a focus on, you know, premium large format screens, on the VIP experience, more recently on kids' experience, there's 4D concepts. So I think, um, you know, technology from an e-commerce perspective is now seamless. You know, you easily book your ticket online, you can order food online, you can, you know, you get a, you get a follow-up email before you attend after to see how the experience was. I think, you know, there's, there's a massive sort of loyalty programs embedded throughout most of the Australian chains, whereby if there's an issue, you get the chance to give feedback and they can fix it really quickly. Um, so I think the Australian exhibitors have, have always been very innovative. Um, I think moving forward, um, that trend's going to continue. And you know, don't, don't get me wrong, the Australian industry, like all industries, has its challenges. Um, you know, we have... have you know, we've just had recent wage increases again. You know, with obviously what's coming with, we have, you know, high inflation. I think we have the lowest, lowest unemployment rate in 50 years. So there's, there's a desperate need for sort of more people in Australia because we don't have as many international students and, and whatever else coming into the country anymore. We absolutely do have our challenges, but again, we are really focused on the experience of cinema going. And I think the numbers from this year with take your pick, you know, from Minions, from Elvis, from Maverick. I think Maverick's now the number three or four film of, of all time in, in Australia. Um, so when we do have the right content, people are sort of racing back. You know, we have an IMAX cinema in, in Melbourne, which is doing dimensionally better than the rest of the circuit on a, sorry, the country on a Parada perspective. Um, it's doing incredibly well. And I think moving forward, you won't be able to do average. I think you need an exceptional experience. Otherwise, you know, people will visit mm. another venue. And I think perhaps some countries have been slow to sort of adopt and they've had that old style, you know, massive box with just with seats in it and a generic experience and no service and no food and mm. no whatever else. I think we all now have really high expectations in regards to anything that we do. I used to joke about, you know, coffee and examples where people used to sort of put Nescafe coffee into, you know, venues and sort of into cinemas and say, oh, look, People don't want coffee in the cinema, but they don't want Nescafe coffee. They want, you know, barista quality coffee. So I think as long as the experience matches or exceeds expectations and as long as it's as good as the best in class. So when we're developing e-commerce platforms, we compare to, you know, the best e-commerce platform in the world, not to the best competitors e-commerce platform. So we're comparing to an airline or to something like that. I think that's really critical. Same with F&B. You know, when we sort of, our industry first went through the, you know, focus on F&B, it would be a microwave pizza and some, maybe some French fries if you're lucky and a hot dog. Now, you look now, the caliber of F&B in many of our VIP cinemas is as good as what you can get in restaurants, you know, um, and that's what people expect and they're happy to charge me what you need to charge me to make that happen, but, but I want an exceptional experience. And I think that's, that's the focus moving forward. Those that don't adopt and evolve and they try to just, you know, or, or they're happy with average, that they won't succeed moving forward. And I think market share will, will drive towards those, the better experience, the better premium large format, the, the better service, the better F&B, all those elements. 
Australia and, and New Zealand, it's, I know it's highly multicultural. How does that affect the film audience? I mean, what's, what's the market in terms of international imports? It's not well, so Hollywood. Indian content has become incredibly popular, um, over the last, you know, however long we, and, and as you noted, you know, Australia is, you know, less than 250 years old, the country. And if you go into any city, it's a, depending on which city you're in, it's a massive mix of different nationalities, which is why our country is so amazing. I think um, the international content is important, but you see it in clusters. So you might see in parts of Sydney more of a focus on Chinese content, you know, other parts that might be focused more on, you know, Indian content. But I think one thing that the Australian chains do incredibly well, they've really committed to exceptional talent within the content and film programming teams. So the programming is is not generic. It's, it's intimate. It's down to a per screen, per location sort of focus. Mm-hmm. And you'll look at two cinemas that might be five kilometres apart with similar sort of screen counts, and the, the schedule is totally different based on what they know. And, again, that reflects on, you know, the data and that that they're gathering from the loyalty program to see what's popular and what's not. Mm-hmm. And there's no generic kind of we'll just play, play stuff and hopefully people come along. It's really focused on, you know, what's going to be most successful. And we see that from you know, Australian films to, you know, Indian to all those other different. We are very focused on ensuring that you see great content in our cinemas. Um, you know, we've, we've done sports, we've done concerts, we've done opera, we've done all those different things. Um, and depending on the location as to how, how much of that comes back again. Now, Cameron, starting in 2007, you were the CEO of Vox Cinemas, one of the leading cinema chains in the Middle East. It's a dynamic, rapidly growing market. And as someone who has 15 years of experience working there, now that you've been able to take a step back and and maybe look at that market from the outside, where do you think it's headed in the next few years? The Middle East is incredibly different to most international markets in that you have a lot of natural advantages that suit cinema. So first of all, for several months of the year, it's really hot and you want to be indoors and you can't be outside playing sport. You know, there's a high disposable income in most of the Middle Eastern countries, very family focused, less focused on on alcohol. You know, from a cost-based perspective, you know, um, labour costs are significantly lower and the experience is, is amazing. You know, the, the, the in-cinema experience is amazing because of some of those other factors. So cinema in the Middle East is more, you go to the cinema more than the movie. So whereas in you know the US you might go to this go to watch you know um, Maverick in the, in the Middle East people go to the cinema and look to see what's on and they'll find the best available and that's what they'll go and see. I, I think many of those factors are never going to change. It's, it's always going to be hot. There's always going to be a huge focus on family because of hot and family. There's always this, this massive focus on shopping malls. Um, shopping malls are incredibly competitive for. You know, entertainment and food being the, the, the really strong anchors for, for malls. You know, 16, 20 screens, 24 screens is nothing to see in a, in a cinema and massive investments in, in the experience within that cinema. All of the different premium large formats, VIP, you know, Vox. You know, we, we had a Michelin starred chef basically catering to our, uh, our cinemas, you know, uh, to our VIP cinemas. You know, we had massive IMAX screens. We had, you know, 40X. We had kids. We had, you know, we had a business class concept. It's part of the habit. Um, people are really desperate to mm-hmm. be entertained over there. So I see it sort of continuing as it has. You know, like the UAE was the biggest market. Saudi opened in 2018. 
Saudi, I think, for the last few years has exceeded the UAE. It, it's been, you know, really incredibly busy and it's growing. Saudi will become a billion dollar market. It just depends when. You know, you've got more than 30 million people, good disposable incomes, and they, again, same heat and family focus and no alcohol and whatever else. So I think the Middle East is quickly becoming a really criti- critical territory in, in the global landscape. And I think more than ever with pressures in other territories and countries, we really do need, yeah, we, we need other territories to sort of step up to ensure that that global box office is still Mm-hmm. you know, growing in, in a healthy way sort of annually. It, it's an incredible region. We need to get that habitual movie going back. <laughs> yeah, yeah, you're right. It's, it's something, um, you know, I've thought about a lot because, you know, we always talk, you know, in the industry about, you know, the whatever generations, you know, are not coming, Gen Alpha, Gen Z, you know, millennials, whatever. But but I love seeing, you know, and, and I start to date on, I don't think it's happening globally, you know, the different forms of content that's coming to cinema. I think it's not only about, you know, the food, the service, the ambiance, the technology and, and the seats and the screen and all that sort of stuff. I think now what happens in cinema is not negotiable. It has to be an amazing image on screen and it has to be amazing sound and, and whatever else. I think the sector, it's critical to the art and the culture of country. Um, and I think we're going to see that cinema is going to rebound and continue to see great numbers. Subject to exhibitors investing in experiences that are done in Australia and New Zealand. Like it's, it's so mission critical. People won't, won't go to an average experience. They really want to see something special. And that was Cameron Mitchell from the National Association of Cinema Owners, a trade group representing movie theaters in Australia, speaking with box office pros, Rebecca Pauly. Thanks again for joining us. And thanks again to you, the listener, for tuning in once again to the Box Office Podcast. On behalf of Russ, Rebecca, myself, we wanted to thank you for listening. We'll be back next week in our first uh, Show East episode that we're going to be bringing to you guys from Miami. So don't miss it. Make sure to subscribe, rate, share, like, whatever you do with podcasts. Just make sure you can continue supporting our work here by telling people to download all the latest episodes of the Box Office Podcast, which comes out every Thursday. The Box Office Podcast is produced by Box Office Pro in collaboration with Record Edit Podcast and the Box Office Company. Thanks again for listening. We'll see you again next week. 